This is the True North Collective podcast, a gathering of unsugarcoated conversations on authenticity, created by the real-life documentation of everyday humans fearlessly finding their true north. Welcome to season four of the podcast. Hi, I'm Rachel. I recently won the bright light superlative at work. I might go shave my head in the desert soon, and I recently ate seven bags of cookies in seven days, and I currently feel like shit. Hi, I'm Ethan. I played drums in a ska band in high school. I have written and recorded over 20 songs, and I once rode my bike from Seattle to the end of Highway 1 in British Columbia. Hi, I'm Janelle. When I stay in hotels alone, I turn the heat up to 75 degrees. Burgers are the best post-backpacking treat, and I have nail polish on one of my toes that's been there for six months. And we are your hosts of the True North Collective podcast. We did it. Okay, Ethan, what was the the bike ride that you did? Um, it was a bike tour uh, with uh-huh. my cousin. So oh. we started in Seattle, and then we actually took a bus to Vancouver and started from there. We went up the kind of inner coast. I forget what it's called. And then we got to the end of one and then came down the Sunshine Coast, which is kind of the, the coast, the interior coast of Vancouver Island. You're walking to the right cookie. I know. Here. <laughs> I was going. just like, I did that too. <laughs> oh, you did that too? Yeah. It and then of... I was like, I was like, shut the fuck up. <laughs> That's How did awesome. That yeah. I, yeah. So, you, uh... but I did it with like, an organization. So okay. I, I cheated. <laughs> That's not cheating. If you, if you ground out those miles on a bike, you, you did it. Well, and there was gale force winds one of the days. And so they shut down the track, but several of us got through. And so I was riding with two other people and I was just, I was crying because the trees were falling. And I was like, they'd be stopping the race if it was dangerous, right? And they were like, yeah, totally, we think. And then we got like all the way done and everybody's like, how did you get through? <laughs> we closed wow. it down. Yeah, it was really scary. Anyways, I stole your story. <laughs> No, that sounds like a very different story. Yeah, what's your race? Yeah, sorry. (laughs) Well, mine was that um, I was, I I just got really interested in bike touring after my cousin gave me this book called Travels with Willie by Willie Weir. He's like, um, he's a journalist who writes for the, like, I think it's called the ATA, American, ACTA, American Cycle Touring Association. And it's this great kind of travel log book. And we both got really into the idea of doing a bike tour. And at the time I was working a corporate job and I just hated working in a cubicle. And I was like, I need to get away from this for like a month. So I just took all the vacation time that I had plus some unpaid time. And we did this bike tour. Um, And it actually like really was the launching point for my tiny house. Like I, I left on the bike tour and then came back and like, while I was on the trip, I kind of, we we were couch surfing. So we stayed in a bunch of tiny houses and, you know, people kept saying while we were, you know, cause you're, when you're bike touring, as I'm sure Rachel, you know, like people just talk to you, like for, for whatever reason, you just become this approachable person and you have nowhere to go. Cause you're like on a bicycle. That literally happens to me anyways. Okay. Like, I literally don't have to do anything, and people start telling me their life story. Continue. Well, then you're doing, you found the right thing to do hosting this podcast. The rest <laughs> of us need bicycles. It's yeah. fine. Yeah. 
exactly. The rest of us need bicycles to to make friends out in the world. Um, people kept saying kind of like, oh, this is going to be such a life-changing trip for you. This is amazing. This is going to change your life. And like while I was on the trip, I was just like, yeah, I just feel really hungry and tired all the time. I don't, I don't feel like any different. Um, and then kind of when I got back from the trip is when I was like, realized that I had, my perspective had shifted and just having spent the month with so few things, um, just having my life become so simple. It, it, I don't remember exactly when I found out that like tiny houses were tiny houses on wheels were a thing, but it was soon after I got back that I, that I saw one online and I was just like, I'm doing that. That's cool. I like that the call because there's so many things that in my life where it's the same thing. People are like, it's going to change your life. It's going to be this big thing. But when you're in it, you're just kind of like, oh, and I think Rachel, you and I have even been talking about this in general, but like we're living this life that we said we wanted to live. And when you're in it though, a lot of times it's like, yeah, I'm just tired and I'm hungry. Like I, I've been traveling around the world or not around the world or in the United States, um, as I mentioned, since July and living out of my car and, you know, staying with friends and it, like, it's been amazing. Don't get me wrong. But a lot of points you're like, sometimes you're like, this is just really inconvenient in the day to day, <laughs> or you're yeah. just trying to juggle things or you're stressed out or you're living out of a suitcase. And, um, and there's also many, many like beautiful, beautiful moments, right. Where you're like, oh my God, I can't believe I'm doing this. Or this is one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen. Um, but to your story, Ethan, I'm excited to see when I'm done and really have a chance to reflect and I'm out of it. Um, what I'm going to continue to take away from it and, and see. So I appreciate that call out as someone who is mid journey and adventure right now um, and still figuring it out, figuring out what it's all going to mean to me. I mean, are you familiar with the concept of like type one and type two fun? I think so, but remind me. <laughs> well, it's like my understanding is like type one fun is like the fun that's fun while you're doing it, like going down a water slide or, yeah, you know going on a carnival ride whereas type two fun is the kind of fun that like isn't really that fun while you're doing it but like afterwards you're like that was great I want to do it again and bicycle touring definitely is that it's oh brutal it's like brutal while you're doing it and then you're like this was that was amazing so running a Ragnar we have a, a Ragnar running team and that's how I always feel when I do it I don't like running and yeah. it's I mean, it's fun when we're hanging out, but when I'm racing, I'm just like, why did I sign up for this shit? Why am I running eight miles right now? But then the day after yeah. I'm like, let's do another one. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, I'd never heard it called that, but um, I've been working a, or not working a lot. I've just been like thinking a lot about short-term versus long-term hits of goodness, I guess. <laughs> I don't know how else to say it. Um, and how sometimes the short-term painful decision is actually going to get me to the long-term sustained fun. And so, um, I've been playing with those two things. I haven't heard it called type one and type two of fun. I like that. I like that a lot. How many days were you biking for or weeks or how? Yeah. It was about a month for me. Um, I did it in two days, dude. <laughs> holy crap. But were you carrying all your stuff? Uh, no, 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 no. No, but I had a hybrid bike and everybody was just like, what are Wait. you doing? So you, you went from Seattle to the end of highway one in British Columbia. In two I, days? I went from Vancouver to 
to the Seattle end. in two days. Oh, from Vancouver to Seattle. Yeah. Wow. And then two That's... weeks later, I decided I wanted to do the Grand Fondo. So then I did Vancouver to Whistler. That was unreal. That's crazy. That's some yeah. crazy elevation gain. It was amazing. How many, do you guys know how many miles that is for someone remember. who has no concept of distance between the two? Oh, here, I'll Google it. It's about <laughs> a three hour drive. So I'm guessing it's about 180 miles. It seems like it was longer than that. But yeah, that, I guess. I mean, that's that... pretty, that's long <laughs> for on a bike. You could do a centennial run. Right. Race you did like almost two cent. You did two back to backs, though. That's right. I did. That is what it was. It was like yeah. two hundred. We were doing. At first, we were doing like between fifty and seventy miles a day, but this was like fully loaded touring bikes. So like they weighed like fifty pounds, you know, with all uh, all your gear, ooh. camping gear, sleeping bag, tent, cooking, everything. You know those crazy people with the yellow bags on the sides of their bikes. And then we kind of realized that like a 70 mile day was basically like didn't leave any time to experience the places that we were in. And like if we wanted to do any kind of side adventure, like stop and see an attraction or take a walk or do something, that wasn't an option. So we we kind of dialed back the itinerary a bit and and found that like 30 or 40 miles a day still was like a lot when you're riding those bikes on hilly, you know, terrain, but it was a better pace. Oh, it's cool. I love, I, I miss it. I haven't, I have my, my bike in, well, I, I feel similarly about an, in being in an RV. I just recently bought an RV. It's the same thing. It's like, nice. you can just like go for it and make it work. But then if you don't leave enough time to like stop and see things, it's kind yeah. of defeats the purpose. But um, I miss my bike. I've been carrying it around with me since Vancouver and it's a great bike and I want to get back out again I just moved to California so I think that there are places around here I can go I'm just got to find people to take me with the masks on yeah Ethan I feel like your intro you're into all the cool things music biking building homes so let's Thank should you. we introduce you yeah <laughs> on that note you're welcome I I sincerely mean that I I'm always a fan of people that have cool interests. Before we introduce Ethan, Rachel and I are excited to share that we are offering 11 workshops on authenticity in 2021. Our workshops are going to be a space to get curious and celebrate the journey towards a more authentic life. These 11 workshops will be happening on the first Thursday of every month, starting in March, and we'll be doing our intention setting workshop January 28th. We are excited to be offering a deal. You can attend all 11 workshops for $99, or if you just want to drop in for a single workshop, it will be $15 a workshop. Topics will range from the contrast to consistency, roadblocks, personal responsibility, embodiment, celebration, letting go, presence, connection, and trust. And these will all be live with Rachel and I. We would love to have you join us. We'll leave a link in the bio where you can get more information on how to sign up and join us. All right, let's introduce Ethan. Um, so today we are welcoming Ethan Waldman to the podcast. 
He is a tiny house author, speaker, and teacher who built his own tiny house on wheels in 2012 and has been passionately helping future tiny home dwellers on their own journeys ever since. So Ethan also has a guide called Tiny House Decisions, which has helped thousands of readers answer the big questions about tiny houses and plan each system in their future home. He also is the creator and host of the Tiny House Lifestyle Podcast, a show that brings you conversations with tiny house luminaires, builders, and DIYers. And Ethan and his wife, Anne, live in their tiny house part-time in northern Vermont. So welcome to the podcast, Ethan. We're excited to have you. you. It's good to be here. So... We, I don't, I didn't actually warn you about this one. I think this is the part I missed in the intro. My apologies, but we like to start out post intro by just asking you, what does it look like to be Ethan today? That's a big question. Yes. Today in this moment. Um, Well, in this particular moment, um, Ethan works from home as, as usual as has been the case for the last like eight years. Um, but uh, Ethan has reached a point where I, I'm speaking in third person too. I love it. I, I was like, you asked going. the question. You asked the question. <laughs> I was wondering person. if you were, if that was like a thing you were into. No, I was really switch. <laughs> I don't, I can't keep that up for more than a few seconds. So, you know, I've kind of reached the point where, you know, I, I, have my own business and I kind of set my own hours and I don't, I don't sell my time anymore, which was kind of the impetus for me to start the whole tiny house journey in the first place was like realizing that I didn't want to have to sell my time. And so looking at ways to reduce my expenses so that I could, you know, leave the corporate job and then figure, figure out where to go from there. And so my day was pretty freeform. You know, I, I spent a couple hours working. I went out for a nice long walk and enjoyed the snow. Um, played guitar for a couple minutes and um, ate at home, just like everyone else on the planet. So let's jump right in. because I'm really fascinated in tiny homes. I've kind of similar to Rachel, she said she had an RV. I've been like debating between van life and then buying an Airstream and then on this journey of staying in Airbnbs and sleeping in cars. Um, I stayed in a tiny house, a couple of them in, in Leadville, Colorado. And uh, my parents actually, for whatever reason, seemed to really want me to get a tiny house instead of an Airstream. Don't ask me why. Maybe because they've been watching TV shows on it. <laughs> but so I, I'm still trying to figure out like, what is this somewhat like nomadic and also reduction of expenses lifestyle look like? Um, you had mentioned that your ride um, between Vancouver and Seattle sparked the idea. Like, tell us a little bit more about how how that happened. Sure. Well. Um... So we were we were doing a self-supported bicycle tour, which meant that we were just carrying our food and lodging with us. And uh, we also made use of the website Couchsurfing, which um, I don't know, I think they're still around, but it was like, it was before Airbnb was really a thing. And it was, it was Airbnb, but free. And um, we ended up just staying in, in a few different tiny houses on this bike trip. Um, just people that we met and, you know, sometimes we, I mean, obviously they were tiny houses. So 
we camped on the floor in somebody's and they were up in the loft. And then I think we camped in somebody's yard. And I think that returning from the bike tour back to the like house that I was renting with, with a, a friend, you know, full of stuff, full of space and comforts suddenly felt more like kind of like a weight, an anchor around me that was kind of holding me back from potentially taking, taking the leap and, and just severing ties with, with my kind of corporate career that I wasn't that thrilled about. And, you know, housing and rent was like the biggest monthly expense that I had. So I was just like, now how can I get rid of this? And then I also, you know, the idea of building something and learning those skills also really appealed, appealed to me. What was your corporate job? So, um, I studied, um, basically adult learning. It it was like a communications program. Um, (laughs) so I had a background in instructional design and like was working for Green Mountain Coffee Roasters, their Vermont company. They, um, but they also around before I started working there, but they were an investor in Keurig, you know, those like coffee pods. And that became like this huge thing. So the company was growing like crazy while I was there. But um, yeah, I, I liked I liked some elements of the work, like the the creative, the creativity. I enjoyed making, creating training products, like basically creating screencasts and movies. And, you know, sometimes I mixed my own songs into them. Um, but I didn't love the like, the rigidity of the of the structure, the eight to five. And there was, at that point, companies weren't as open to letting you work remote. So it was just not a good fit for me. I had moved to Vermont because I love to ski and I love the outdoors. And I was like sitting inside most of the time, which was killing me. Yeah, totally. I can relate. Um, I was curious because thinking of trying to take on building um, like a log, a log cabin out of like little sticks, yeah. <laughs> like popsicle sticks seems difficult uh-huh. to me. So <laughs> being like, I have to learn how to build a whole freaking house. Like how long did that take you? I mean, you learn while you do it is really what ends up happening. And the, the house took, um, 13 months total. That's and it? I ended up hiring, I like hired a local kind of handyman jack of all trades type who worked with me like two days a week and so you know he would get me started on things and then I would keep going on them so that's wild and you designed it yourself or did you buy a template offline so I I bought a set of plans which um at that time there was really very few people selling tiny house plans. There was this one company called Tumbleweed Tiny Houses. And so I bought, I bought a set of plans for like $750, which is so crazy now. Cause like tiny house plans now cost a fraction of that just cause there are so many of them. And, um, I was, I was pretty dead set on that house. And then I was, I think I was at like a family dinner, a Thanksgiving, I think. And a really good friend of my parents is a local designer architect type. And I was talking to him. I was a little nervous about it because he's a really like really quiet 
really smart person and you like you were like what is he's like very quiet and then we'll say something and just like drop the knowledge so i was like kind of showing the plans and he was very quiet and he just he said i think i think ethan's tiny house can do better than this and so he really wanted to design a tiny house and i really wanted to build a tiny house so i ended up getting like pro bono architect work on this tiny house and it was an, it was i mean I never would have been able to afford to hire him for what, you know, what it costs to actually have a house design. So that was a real lucky, lucky thing for me. That is so cool. And I mean, did you have any carpenter building background at all? No. Well, I, you know, I like, I had built a couple of things. Like I helped, I helped my parents build a chicken coop right before I started the <laughs> tiny house. Um, and like, my my dad is like handy like we would like you know rewire an outlet or like you know patch drywall do like little handy projects around the house together but we had never built anything but building is something that like almost anyone can learn how to do you know it's i think there is something innately human about about like making shelter for yourself and you know it's not rocket science either. Like, and no, and obviously like a professional carpenter, professional builder can produce things that are much, much higher quality and much faster than, than the layman. But um, it is definitely learnable. And, and through the years, I've just seen so many different kinds of people of all ages and ability um, build, build their own houses. But I mean, like, I also would caution you that it's that it's a majorly exhausting undertaking that will consume your life and it's not worth it for everybody to build their own like unless that's an experience that you really want to have the building experience um then don't do it my father is a carpenter by trade so maybe that'll make this his retirement project for yeah me. <laughs> yeah don't let him fact check my answers either no. you're totally good Oh, that's so interesting. I also threw my hands up before because I worked um, on a learning and development team. I was on the trainer side, but did a little ah. bit of, of crossover with instructional design. Um, so just shout out to nice. all the instructional designers. Appreciate yep. you. <laughs> Nobody else does, but we appreciate each other. <laughs> that is true. Oh, that's super funny. When oh, people okay. ask you what like instructional design is, I'm like, you know that like training that you had to take at work where you had to keep <laughs> clicking through the slides and then take a quiz at the end? I'm like, me. yeah, I, I made that. <laughs> you're like, and um, when you went off the browser, it stops playing because yeah. you're forced to watch it. I did that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yup. <laughs> Been there. As the deliverer of it, though, um, I mean, some of it's video-based, obviously, but we'd get the facilitator guides, and I, I think people liked our training, but every once in a while, you'd do one, or you'd have a participant that would not want to be there, and yeah, that was always my favorite, though, because I was just like, you, I mean, this might be required, but if you don't want to participate and be here, the door is right there. <laughs> You're more than welcome yeah, well, to leave. <laughs> I think that the, like, instructional designers, the training department, if there is one, people come to you with organizational problems that they they don't want to solve themselves and they're like oh training can solve this cultural problem right 
Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I like we could have a whole podcast on, on Ellen Dean. You're listening to the Instructional Design <laughs> North podcast. We truly could. Oh, that's awesome. I, uh, I feel seen right now. <laughs> All right. So back, back to tiny houses. Um, so you were starting to mention the change in lifestyle. I'd be curious, like what was going on in your mind? I mean, you weren't fully enjoying your corporate job. You wanted to reduce your expenses. Was there like a level deeper than that? Well, I think that I was, I was definitely scared of not knowing what I wanted to do, you know, or, or not. I think that everyone around me all my friends from from college and and before you know we're having these kind of careers and we're starting to like climb the the professional ladder and i think that i was grappling with and i st- i think i'm still grappling with like 10 years later no i like that i i'm not sure that i want that and so i think that the tiny house project gave me something to really focus on and really dive into that, that helped me like almost have a reason that I was quitting my job. Like that I wasn't just quitting my job to like sit around and like to just have like more leisure time. Cause that, you know, there's some, certainly some shame to, to, to like, when you think about what, well, what are people thinking about me? Like, I don't have a normal job. They must think I'm lazy. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> we uh, <laughs> we just had a well, I just had a similar conversation on the phone um with one of my friends that was laid off and I was also laid off during COVID too. And um just the the shame even in that. And I've been unemployed now for this would be five months and I've been doing a lot of really cool things with it, but to your point. I feel like people sometimes still look at me and as someone who was a workaholic and, you know, ran a business and put so much of my identity into my career and into the work I was doing. And now just being like, I do creative projects and, and travel. And yes, I think people think that's really cool. And there's the other side to it of like, you're going to get a job or like, what are you really doing with your life? Like, this is only going to last for so long, which in my case, I agree with like, I'm trying, I'm trying to apply for jobs. Um, but I, I get that shame and I have to kind of pet myself up sometimes too. And just be like, Hey, like, yes, you're doing cool things. And also remember, like, I, I'm even nervous now just to go back into the workforce. I'm like, well, I remember how to have a job, which sounds so silly. Cause of course I will. But the, the stories that we spin in our own heads as you're in the state of uh, uncertainty. Definitely. It's also crazy the the shame that follows you up until the point where you are confident in where you're at. And what I mean by that is like, you know, I'm, I have a job, I have benefits and, and everything, but the job that I took was less responsibility so that I could have the energy to be able to do my side stuff and live the life I want because my time is valuable. Um, and working through the shame even there too, that like the job that I have isn't enough and stuff like that. So um, I feel like over the course of really standing in 
my ability to choose what I want and like really intending to choose it and then show up. Um, I'm, I'm getting there. I'm a lot closer than I've ever been. And I think that's allowing me to show up. Um, yeah, to just show up better in general, but it's a, it's a journey. The shame seems, has seemed to follow me. <laughs> yeah. And it, I guess for me, like when I left the job, I was, I was specialized enough. You know, I was kind of the only person, not the only, but like one of just a couple of people who were doing what I was doing at the company. And, you know, I, I managed to kind of turn my job into from a full-time job into a consulting position where essentially I kept doing the work that I was doing just on a project by project basis. And so I was working from home or I was working from wherever. And that was great because, you know, I was getting paid a ton because when you, when you become a consultant, like somehow you, you get to like triple or quadruple your hourly rate because they're not paying you like they're not paying for benefits they're not paying for retirement they're not paying for vacation days or any of that stuff and so that like helped me have the extra money because I, I went way over budget on the tiny house um it helped me have the extra money also to be able to hire the person to help me which i i still am convinced that i don't know if i would have finished the house if i hadn't done that because i was just i was moving so slowly i was second guessing everything um and so it was, it was a nice, it, it, it was a slow transition from like consulting and building the house and then, you know, keeping consulting, but also starting this business and starting to build it up. And then, you know, consultants are the first to go when like the company has like a, any up or down, usually any down. And so there was one point where like, I didn't have any projects and I just made the decision, like, I'm not going to hustle. I'm not going to hustle for another project. I'm going to just like focus in on, on this tiny house thing that I'm, that I'm doing. And I think that that helped the people around me at least see like, oh, cool. Ethan's doing something like he's really, he's building something Well, he's built a house and now he's building this business. Um, but even just for me, it's like anybody who makes a comment that is kind of comments on how much free time I have, it like, it just triggers this shame where even if it's a compliment, but it's like, especially from somebody older, like an uncle or an aunt saying like, oh, wow, well, that's, that's nice. Isn't that nice for you that you're like, you know, going skiing on a Tuesday and it's only been in the last, like, I feel like year, I don't know what has changed, but I've just kind of decided that like, I work hard, but I do it on my own terms. And now I, I'm kind of getting the rewards from that and I'm lucky, but it's, it just is what it is. So cultural, just that, that hustle mentality that we've been taught. And I will say I'm like, reco I'm recovering from that too. Just accepting that I don't need to hustle all the time yeah. and that downtime is good. And I want, like, I want to have a life outside of work, even if I'm trying to strive for on, an entrepreneurial pursuit. Cause I, I think the corporate world has that for sure. And then it's like, to be a true entrepreneur, you must work 150 hours a week and never leave your business and da, 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 yeah. da, 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 da. And it's very hard to break out of that, that mindset and not feel the shame. Yeah. Yeah. 
there's an organization and I don't remember what it is. I think it was a T brand or something. Um, and there's an interview that I read um, from, it was either the owner or the CEO. Um, and they were saying, we for sure could make a ton more money. Like we could make more profits, but the business model that, you know, I am working towards or we are working towards is one that um, we make the profits that allow us to be able to, you know, make it run the business and some and, and grow it um, at a rate that also allows us to be human is what I'm going to say, just to yeah. sum it up. And um, I loved that. It was like at a point in time, I was <clears throat> working up in Vancouver and I remember thinking to myself like, shit, yes, somebody else. Like I was thinking that, but then I was like, who am I? Like some you know, young, whatever, who's just trying, again, telling myself like, oh, you're just trying to not work as hard. But that's not what I was trying to do. I was like, actually, I think I'll be a better, I'll be better at what I do if I have the chance to actually like explore who I am and take a break and try new things. And um, so to have this, like who I deemed as an authority figure be right. saying something so profound, I was like, look, it can work. <laughs> like, and I think I've taken that with me, even on the smaller scale for myself of like, okay, what's the lifestyle I actually want to have? Um, and, you know, what, what's the trade-off? What am I choosing? What's the value of, you know, what am I going to actually put my energy towards? Um, so I, I'm appreciative of whoever that person was from whatever their organization was. Yeah. Sometimes I think how can any... I'm sure there are people out there that can, but for me, it's like, how can I be creative or even have like a strong big picture, futuristic thinking when I'm just completely stressed out and burnt out all the time. And that's something I learned running the studio is when I would take those breaks, I would go on vacation. I would go for a long hike. That's when all the creativity would get flowing and the big ideas. And I would end up thinking about work anyway and, and building things in my mind. Um, that I just like couldn't have done if I was in in the space and just like grinding away at at tasks and I'm trying to carry that over into any job and position I do and also really put like my stake in the ground of if someone's like oh you need to be at your desk doing it it's like actually if I go for a two-hour hike I bet you I'll come up with a bunch of solutions to your problems so go let me do that and we'll all be better off right yeah you need the space to be creative and to think it's not like a linear thing. Definitely not. Um, I'm curious, can we talk about trust and doubt in your process? Because for so many people leaving the quote unquote safety of a corporate job or taking a risk to start a business, I'm sure and correct me if I'm wrong, but there are moments maybe where you doubted that this was possible. You maybe doubted yourself. And if that was the case, I'm also curious how you continue to come back to trust and, and confidence that you'd be able to do it. Sure. I mean, I'll start by saying that I, you know, this whole process for me has been immensely privileged and, you know, my parents paid for my college. I don't, I didn't have college debt that I was having to service while I was also, you know, leaving my job to build a tiny house. I had a free place to stay while I was building it. Um, you know, I had a lot of support from family. Like there was never, there was never a real chance that I would ever be actually homeless. 
And that is certainly not the case for, for many people who, who are now interested in the tiny house movement. You know, it's kind of interesting to see how, where we've come, which is now we're, we're like, there could be this huge wave of evictions when, whenever the protections run out and, you know, tiny houses, I think are going to be in huge demand, but anyhow, trust and doubt. Um, I think that I am a very cautious person. And so, you know, I probably didn't really ever take that big of a leap. It all happened like in very small increments and stages. Like, you know, I, I turned the, the corporate job into the consulting job. So like my income didn't really take much of a hit. And, you know, by the time that those those corporate jobs were kind of winding down the the projects, you know, I had already launched like my I, I had started a different business actually, like doing technology coaching. Um, and I had clients through that business. And then I, you know, just was seeing this immense interest in tiny houses. I was getting so many questions based on like a Facebook page that I had started and and then a, a WordPress website. And so I, I just saw that there was demand. And so it wasn't that big of a leap to to then like say, okay, I'm going to package, I'm going to write a book about my process in this and, and put it up for sale. Um, so I was very cautious about like taking big leaps, but I think I still had and continue to have doubts from time to time. Certainly, I, I had doubt about whether I could even build the house, but, you know, made it through that. I think that my biggest doubts have have been around, you know, whether what I'm doing now is is sustainable and, like, what do I have, what's next? Like, what am I going to have to come up with next to, like, keep bringing in income? Um, because I, at this point, I, I kind of think I'm unemployable. I would love to hear more about that statement. I know. I was like, I wanted to just say, there's a little cliffhanger. I was Tell like, me more. <laughs> keep talking. Well, I mean, I, I think I'm unemployable because, well, A, I haven't done instructional design in so long. And I'm, I've always been kind of a multipod. Like I, I'm interested in a lot of different things. And I'm not really a specialist at any one thing. And so I just don't, I don't really know what, what kind of job I even could get, but also I'm unemployable because I like don't ever, I don't really want to work for anyone ever again anyway. So I think that makes me unemployable mostly that I just don't want to have a job. My body is like electrical currents right now <laughs> from that statement. Um, yeah, I, I've had a lot of conversations about that too, just being a, like a jack of all trades and like in theory that should be a good thing. And, and many times it is, but also how it gets, it pushes you away from more specialized jobs, even though, right. uh, and again, as someone who's applying for jobs, I'm like, I'm perfectly capable of doing that just because I have a diverse background with immense amount of like soft and potentially hard skills. Um, but people be like, but you haven't been doing this one thing for 10 years. And I'm like, okay, 
the internet and half the tools we're using right now, we're not even around 10 years ago. So come on. Um, but I've definitely had to have those conversations and, and look and seek organizations that are looking for someone that can wear many hats while still acknowledging that I don't know if I want to wear that many hats anymore either. I've definitely applied for a lot of like startup jobs and, um, you know, like coming, being more intentional, like coming up front in interviews and being like, Hey, I'm your ops person. I'll, I'll manage the projects, but like, I don't want to try to be the person that can do every single skill set in the marketing department. And, um, that, that has been something that's been really, really relatable for me lately. There's got to come a time where organizations are going to realize that both expertise and a broad, like a portfolio of, you know, a portfolio ability um, are both beneficial and how to tap into both. Because I too, it's interesting. I was like, I never had somebody tell me I didn't have enough experience, which is weird because maybe they should have um, in some jobs. But what I started to get was, how do I know you're going to stay? Um, but that just might be an age thing because I feel like now that's kind of like common companies are having to figure out like how to figure out how to work with the fact that a lot of, I think the younger people are not staying um, because there are so many options. But I, I remember that being the question of like, like I was having to prove my commitment level and um, to an organization. And they're like, why would we invest in you if you're not going to stay? Um, so it, it's kind of interesting. Shift in. put that on on its head and be like, well, what are you going to do to make me want to stay? Exactly. So now when I think about that, I'm like, oh man, that's what I would say. Um, but back then, I don't know. I don't know if maybe I just wasn't at a confidence level place with my own boundaries or if that even seemed like a feasible thing to say, but absolutely like a hundred percent. So I want to hear about imposter syndrome. How does that play? So like, how did that come into the picture? Yeah, well, so there's romance here, which is that, um, you know, I started, I, I had started dating my wife, Anne, before I left on the bike trip. Um, I think we started dating in February and I left on the trip in like October. And as I was building the house, you know, we, we stayed together. We and, you know, while I was building the house, I moved in with her. And so the original, and she owned, she owned, owned and owns this little condo in Burlington, Vermont. So the, you know, the original reason that I wanted to build a tiny house, you know, to live in it full time and save a ton of money was no longer at the core of what I needed the tiny house for. Um, and, you know, she loves the tiny house. So we, we spend a lot of time there. It's about, you know, an hour away from Burlington and it's, you know, in the mountains near skiing. And, you know, so it, it, it became kind of this like vacation getaway for us. Um, but, and I don't hide that fact in, in anything that I do online. Um, because I still built the thing myself, but I certainly can't speak to long-term living in it. You know, I've spent weeks at a time there, which I think gives a pretty good sense of what it's like to be there. But, but again, not, not full, full time. 
So I think that there, there's some imposter syndrome around that of just like, you know, I'm, I'm an expert in this field. I teach, you know, I sell a book about tiny, it's called tiny house decisions and it walks people through, you know, all these big decisions. And then it, it kind of explains all the systems in your house and how they interact and helps you figure out what you're going to do for your own tiny house. So I, I, you know, I feel confident in that knowledge, but I also, you know, not being somebody who's living in it full time, I'm not like producing, I can't do Instagram stories every day, like look at my glamorous tiny life or like, you know, write, you know, about what life was like today in the tiny house. Um, And I think that that was, it's something that I've always, you know, wrestled with in the space. And then the other thing is, again, being such a generalist that like, you know, I built the house myself, but I'm not a professional builder. So I, I don't, I don't teach people how to build, nor would, you know, nobody wants to learn to build from me. Um, so I'm not, I am mean, like, I'm not an electrician. I'm not a plumber. I'm not a carpenter. You know, like, what am I? Like, I'm a, I'm a connector of knowledge. I, I'm good at explaining things and, and taking complex, complicated things and breaking them down and making them simple. So my instructional design background. Um, and then the other way I've kind of worked through that is just starting, starting my own podcast, um, which, you know, has allowed me, I think, to, to apply those skills and talk to experts and kind of extract the good stuff, you know, extract from these experts what they know and present it to an audience who wants to learn. We wanted to just take a quick minute to share about a really amazing organization that is close to our hearts called the Soul Care Collective, which is a black woman run virtual wellness center that offers healing through meditation, yoga, talk therapy, herbalism, and so much more breath work. Um, If you follow them on Instagram, you'll get access to trying out some of the different modalities that they offer. And I personally have been um, impacted positively through my healing journey and the work that they do. Um, We highly recommend looking into them, following them on Instagram at Soul Care Collective. And then right now they're actually taking donations to support their affordable wellness initiative. So by donating, you can sponsor healing sessions for Black, Indigenous, non-binary, and femme people who aren't able to afford mental health and wellness services right now. So if you're inspired, we would love if you can spread the word or donate what you can to help give more people access to healing therapies and modalities. It's so juicy and relatable to everything in life. So much so. I'm just, I'm going to sit in it for a second. I have a lot of thoughts in my head, but Rachel, if you had something to say, go for it. Yeah. Do you think if you were on your own that you would spend more time at the tiny house? Or do you think at a certain point you maybe would be doing the same thing you're doing right now? Well, I certainly would have lived there for a time, you know, full time. Um, I have no idea. I, I think that living here though it's it's not a tiny house it's a pretty tiny condo has allowed me to do things that I wouldn't necessarily have been able to do in the tiny house in terms of just like hobbies and projects and things 
Um, I have no idea. When I built the house, I guess I'll give you the answer of what I was thinking when I built it, which was I thought it would cost about twenty dollars to $25,000 to build. And I figured that if I could live in it for two to three years, then I would have recouped what I would have paid in like rent and other living expenses. So my goal was two to three years. I think this is just so interesting too, because it goes back to like linear living and templates where there's there's this blueprint right that we've been handed that we talk about normally where it's like go to college get a job climb the corporate ladder have children get married retire die and then we're starting to go into these niches where it's like there are there are other options now build a tiny house but live in it full time and be a true tiny house person and do all the things but we're just building another blueprint of the quote-unquote right way to do it and I think it's cool it's like you're, you're making you're not following the format the normal format and this new niche format you're making your own that actually works for who you are today and I guarantee it's like your unique niche of a niche where there's probably other people out there that are like I want a tiny house but maybe I don't want to live in it full-time and maybe I do want it to be my vacation rental and you're paving a paving a path for them to see yet another example of what it could look like to be a tiny house owner. Right. And and interestingly, the you know, most of the people who are become customers, I would say, are, you know, at this, you know, at from where they're sitting now, they're like, yeah, I want to live in this thing full time. Um millennials don't stay in their tiny houses. I'll tell you that. Like I mean, obviously I'm making like a generalization, but like most of the millennials who build tiny houses, myself included, like they're in them for a couple of years and then they, you know, either get married or they're married and then they get pregnant and like, then they move on to like the next house. And I thought that the tiny house movement was, it was totally just a young person's thing, but like you would not believe the number of boomers who are like retiring into tiny houses. And they're the ones that are going to stay in them forever. Really interesting. But it makes, I mean, it makes sense yeah. once you're retired too, you do have limited funds and you're not necessarily right. Right. generating more income. I was, I was also going to say, I love the, the nuance call out, Janelle. And also what I heard you saying, or what I heard you saying in all of um, your description there is that you have like a tiny house state of mind. And so even though you're not maybe in your specific tiny house, like, 24 seven. It's, it's, um, it's a way of being. Yeah. You just, I just like lit up there. Cause like, that's the book that I haven't written yet. I don't know if I ever right. will. Cause I'm a slow writer. It's just like <laughs> how to get the, it's, it's, this is a really inelegant title, but it's like how to get the benefits of tiny live tiny house living without ever living in a tiny house. hundred you know? percent. Because yeah. you don't actually have, you know, you, you can do almost all of the lifestyle things that a tiny house gives you without a tiny house. Totally. What? Again, again, with the RV, I basically, so I was living in Dallas. I was in a relationship. Um, I'm, we've recently broken up um, and I moved all my stuff. Well, not all my stuff. I have very little things now, um, but I moved to California to be closer to my family. 
and I'm staying with my parents because I'm like, I just need a home base. And then I really want to be spending time out on the road, which is honestly in my head. I like, it was like, this is so simple. I have a remote role and I just go in the van and I go do my thing. And, and it's not that simple. There are so many more logistics to take into consideration and it's fun to figure out. Anyways, my point being, I minimized and I'm, I've been, in, I'm in the process of moving a lot. And so I don't tend to have, like keep a lot of stuff and I'm really good at figuring out like, what are the Ikea items that work for me that I can, I, I know my routine of moving from place to place. Um, but this time I really decided to get rid of quite a bit, um, you know, all that I could fit in the RV and there was tons of space left in the RV. I just don't have that much. And I'm, I'm now living with my parents. It is a gigantic house. It's insane how big the house is, but I don't like, I still feel good with the amount of things that I have. And I know how to use this space to really surround myself with the things that matter. Um, I don't feel at a deficit. I also don't feel, um, out of place because I, it is, it feels like the idea, um, and the essence of the experience that I'm creating for myself, um, goes beyond the walls of whatever environment I'm in. I was going to just say that like that really resonates and that's, that's just totally a tiny house mentality of, of kind of being mindful about how you fill your space and what you fill your space with. That was going to be my question. I was going to say, Ethan, how do you describe the tiny house state of mind, but did you just do it or is there more to it? Yeah. I mean, it's like part, it's part minimalism, part simplicity, part like environmental friendliness. I think that it has a lot to do with, with our relationship to stuff and like what stuff we keep and how much stuff we, we fill our lives with. Um, and then of course, just the idea of, of reducing your expenses drastically below what you, what your income is. And that's what living in a tiny house does for a lot of people. Um, and then it's also about not an aversion to, but, but many tiny house people are, are getting out of debt and not having a mortgage and just, you know, experiencing life without a huge monthly bill. And then, you know, recalibrating to what, you know, how much do I have to work to, to afford my life? And again, those are just all things you can do without a tiny house potentially. What's the one thing that stayed, this might not be a fair question because I don't know how often you've moved or gotten rid of things, but the question that I had was, what is the thing that has stayed that you've like, that's made it through every single move? I was thinking about that when I unpacked some stuff here. I was like, you have made it every place. Every time I was like, nope, this has to come with me. <laughs> it's just funny. I mean, I always have a guitar with me. And, and I'm, my original instrument was a violin and I, you know, my violin is never going to, gonna never going to leave. Um, so yeah, musical instruments. I, I'm not a minimalist in terms of musical instruments. I own too many and they're not all even here, but I, I scatter, I scatter them around so that I, I, I convince myself that it's okay because like when I go to my parents' house, there's a guitar there to play. It's super interesting, the idea of what people value, specifically when you have that minimalist mindset, um, living on the road now, and I have filled up 
my Subaru Crosstrek. That's what I originally had, which mm -hmm. for a small vehicle actually fits quite a bit in it. And then after that, I reduced it basically to two suitcases and I live out of like a big suitcase and a little suitcase. And that's what I carry with me. Um, but it, but it is funny that my partner who I'm traveling with right now, just to see like what, what does come and like for him, it's a hot sauce collection. We lug around like 25 jars Damn. of hot sauce like at all times. And it's funny because like, again, like two suitcases of things and yet we are lugging around 20 jars of hot sauce. And just Has like, that been a fact about you yet? Uh, ooh, I know. Oh. I'm, I'm trying to think of like what my thing is because that, that's definitely his thing. I don't eat hot sauce, but yeah. Like what, what is the thing that like has to come with? I'm going to have to think about that for me, but Rachel, did you figure out what yours was with that question? Well, yeah. And I was going to say, so I've said this before on the podcast, so maybe I'm manifesting it, but I have moved so many times that like, I, <laughs> I'm really good at the psychological aspects of it the logistics of it. Like I know how to do it efficiently. I know when you get to the place, what things to consider so that you can easily transition into a new environment. Um, and so as funny as that hot sauce is like, that has been a huge thing. I, I should actually figure out how many places my ex-boyfriend and I lived in the seven years we were together, but it was like, I don't think we were in the same place for even a year. And so we both just Fair got enough. really good at it. And one of the things that we realized after the first few moves is the things that each of us needed to immediately have a sense of like home, quote unquote. Um, and so that hot sauce for him is probably, you know, probably has um, indicators that actually like calm him down. You know, for me, it's like, I have this a selenite wand, either a, I have a big one, but then I have smaller ones. And if I can put it in my pocket, or if I can find a place to work out, um, again, for my ex, it was a really good cup of coffee. So we always made sure before we moved to a place that we had these like go-to places um, already in our mind to us to kind of like root us in. Um, but anyways, the things, what's funny, so that when I unpacked this time, I always have sports equipment. So like fish poles, <laughs> tackle box, um, skis, boots, like all my just like gear bike bike stuff um that's pretty much most of it and then I have it's actually I was gonna bring them over but that's uh, obnoxious I'm not gonna do that um I have like a an array of and I don't really like tchotchkes but over the years I've acquired little statues that represent each of my grandparents that have passed and then there's one for my mom there's one for my dad and it's like these important people in my life have somehow become these like I have a whale a bird that my grandfather carved from wood, a rock with a little ladybug on it that my mom painted in like eighth grade. She's like, you still have that? Like, I just have these things that represent different people. And it's almost like becoming a moving altar for me, which um, is cool. I feel like my people are there. We're like, we're good. Um, so it's funny. That's actually the thing that has made it. And my plants, my plants too, always make it. I, they, they always have to make it. <laughs> How do you move with your plants? Cause I'll drop like 300 bucks uh -huh. on plants. And then I have to give them to all my friends every time I move. I'm like, here well, are my plants. <laughs> I don't keep all of them, but, uh, I definitely like, there is a handful that make it. And I, I, I figured out they, they, this one, they were in like a big home Depot box with like blankets around them. And they're my little pals. You're like breeding 
like the hardiest plants because the ones that don't make it die and the ones that you keep are just like the super plants. So true. That is so true. We just had an episode on plants and are those the ones that you sing to and and pet most frequently? Mm -hmm. They're the best. I'm obsessed with them. I like pet their leaves and I say hello and then they're like, stop touching me. I would say I always buy a candle when I travel, yeah, like a candle. candle and then my journal and I need food. That's actually really what I've discovered when I'm traveling. Cause I'm not like that much of a restaurant kind of girl. And I don't enjoy going out to eat that much unless it's like a special experience. So like to have snacks and like a fridge full of stuff really matters to me. Like I get a lot of anxiety until I go to the grocery store and I like gather my little my little concoction of things that I like to eat. And then I feel much calmer. What's the smell of the candle? It's always different that I do normally oh, buy. Interesting. Yeah. So it's not the, it's just the fact that I can light a candle. This is, this is the one that I bring everywhere. It's called true hue stargazing. Ooh. What does that smell like? Well, I'll tell you it's complex. Mandarin, vetiver, neroli, sandalwood, patchouli, Clary sage, lemon, grapefruit, Guatemalan chocolate. Whoa. I to imagine what that smells like. Damn. It's delicious. I have three others uh, just at the helm waiting. I yeah. Love, I love all the things. I know I'm being on the road for almost six months now. And my stuff has been in storage for even longer than that. I'm definitely starting to miss though. Like some of the more like having plants and having just those little touches that are like exclusively me. I know um, when I moved into my apartment at the beginning of this year, thinking I was going to be there for a year, Rachel, you and I chatted about just like the importance and the sometimes unique opportunity of when you're a single person moving into a new space and you can just create the space and make it everything that you want it to be for you. Um, And and how that environment just invigorates you. And just for me, it creates like such a safe little nest and I don't necessarily need it, but I definitely am starting to feel like the lack of my, my nest that has my things and, and I've built custom for me to make sure that I feel comfortable. So it's, it's interesting to hear both of you talk about these things because you are both traveling on the road a lot and for me and for a lot of tiny house dwellers, like we don't end up moving around that much. You know, these, these houses on wheels aren't really that convenient to move. They're like movable, but not like a travel accessory. And so, you know, the, I, I was kind of thinking about this while you were talking and like, I guess the tiny house for me is the object that feels like home. Like it's, it was like, designed, you know, I, I was so involved in design and building it. And then, you know, it's actually right now it's, it's, it's in a transitional parking space right now, but for six years, it was on this really gorgeous little piece of land that we were renting. And it was just that space was what reminded me of home because it just felt so homey. Um, and it's interesting now, like that the tiny house isn't where it's been for so long. And it's like, it's not like unappealing, but it certainly doesn't have the same feeling. And maybe it's because I know that it's not staying where it is right now for, for very long, but 
um, I'm, I'm interested in reconnecting with it when once it does land back in a kind of permanent parking space to like really make it feel like home again. Do you know where it's going to end up? Do you have a hope? Um, I mean, we're kind of in a like interesting transition period right now, just figuring out. Um, so, so my wife just graduated from a, a master's in nursing program and she's looking for an NP job and we want to stay in Vermont. So I think most likely it's going to be somewhere within an hour of where we are now. Um, but then again, we've also like batted around some, we, we recently did a road trip in California and, and just fell in love with like the Joshua tree area, 29 palms, like North of Joshua tree. And, you know, we were like, what if we just bought like a $5,000 lot in 29 palms and just stuck the tiny house there and like, because like Vermont is so gray in the winter that like the lack of sun is is a thing. So we're like, what if we just had a place to go? So who knows? Who knows? I guess is the is my answer. The benefit of wheels. I mean, yes. you would wheel it across the country, right? Yeah, I I would probably hire a company to tow yeah. it out across the yeah. country. Yeah. But yeah, it is on a trailer. So okay, a logistical question. Sure. What kind of plumbing is it? So, uh, are, are you asking about the toilet? Is that? Yeah. And the shower, like both just because, so I originally wanted a van so expensive. So then I ended up with the RV that I have, which is way more space for one person than a less small child size human like me needs, but I have it nonetheless. And there's so many components. I'm just curious because it seems fairly similar. Um, and so, yeah. Yeah. So it's, um, it's got a regular i'm gonna say regular plumbing um mm -hmm. it has well what's not regular is that there's a 40 gallon tank for fresh water um but there's no there are no holding tanks for like gray or black water um, so when so, you get to wherever it plugs into an existing plumbing structure exactly exactly okay. do you have yeah. to like how do you keep things warm enough in the winter so there is heat um so there's a propane direct vent heater. Got it. Um, so fascinating. Yeah. I mean, it's like the utilities in the house are like a normal house. Um, yeah. You know, so there's a propane direct vent heater. There's a tiny little hot water tank. Um, there is a shower. Um, and I would say the most alternative thing about it is just that we, we do a compost toilet, which, you know, is a very simple bucket style toilet that you use yeah. sawdust with. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Oh, it's so fascinating. Again, my ex-boyfriend was really into all sorts of structures. And so, um, it gave me an appreciation for the nuances between the different styles and options. I mean, even like container house living was something we had talked about and, um, yeah, I think your earlier point that um, there's a really big opportunity for some of these smaller structures to come in and support um, some of the communities. I think it's a, it's a really good one. I'm very curious to see what what ends up happening with the shifts of neighborhoods and and things like that. Yeah. This has been awesome. I, I'm excited that you have resources that you've compiled on this conversation because I think it has been a space that has, I don't know, from my perspective, I think it's grounded um, 
it's been grounded in the mindset piece, which I think is maybe hard to wrap your, could be hard to wrap your head around. Um, but from here, it's like, if you resonate with the, honestly, like the vibe that we're, the conversation is coming from, to know that there's resources that you've compiled on what next steps might be and what it could look like is really cool. Like I felt like not pressured to need to go there and also really excited to be able to go there um, and to continue to explore because I think it is a really fascinating idea, the sentiment of, I don't know, the existing construct and path feels very heavy to me. And um, I think it just lends itself to so much more flexibility um, and options. And um, I don't know, almost like a choose your own adventure a little bit. So I I really appreciate the, the conversation. Thanks. Yeah, me too. Ethan, how do you live your true north in one word? I would say that my one word is play. Love. Me love, too. Love, love. We've never had that. We never, We always have a different answer. Isn't that crazy? If anyone wants to get in touch with you, what's the best way to do that? Um, I would say my website, uh, which is thetinyhouse.net, is uh, the place where you'll find everything else. Um, and if you're the podcasting type, which you probably are, um, Tiny House Lifestyle Podcast is in all the all the podcast apps. So look for it there. It's a, a weekly conversation with tiny house dwellers, professional builders, people doing interesting things in and around the movement. And then also just anything that interests me. Like this week, we had a guy on who does cob building, which is like the natural um you basically mix uh clay soil like soil that has a lot of clay in it with straw and water and it's like earthen earthen houses building yeah so all kinds of cool like wait wait. isn't that an adobe style house kind of adobe is like a specific kind of clay this is like kind of even old older school because it's like literally like dirt and straw is it an earth bag house have you heard of those I have heard of that, but it's, it's not an earth bag house. Okay. Similar idea. I stayed in an earth bag house and it was slightly terrifying, nice. but also awesome. <laughs> but anyhow, digression about the podcast right. yes. and that it's not just, what I'm trying to say is that it's not just tiny houses on wheels. Super cool. We'll make sure to link to all of that in the show notes as well. So people can easily access it. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Ethan. This has been awesome. Yeah. And yeah, we appreciate your time and, and sharing what, a tiny house mindset looks like and and more about the movement and just the realities to being an entrepreneur and and a generalist you're in good company if you think that we are good company (laughs) (laughs) i do i do awesome thank you yeah bye bye thanks This has been another episode of the True North Collective podcast. For more from Rachel and I, check us out on the gram at the True North Collective underscore and make sure you're signed up for our mailing list. You can do that at thetruenorthcollective.org to stay up to date on all of our resources, tools, and upcoming events. We appreciate you being here with us. We'll see you next time.